If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter. Our time together this evening will be greatly helped by you just looking at this verse with me for just a moment. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Brooke, would you do me a favor? Would you sit on the front row with my kids while she's out? Thank you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself. We're here speaking to us this evening. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us now as we turn our attention to your word. We have gathered here this evening to remember the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ and to consider afresh what he did for us and for our salvation. We pray that you would help us. We pray that the words that we've sung, the prayer that we prayed, the song that we will sing following this sermon would encourage our hearts that we would be reminded of the great love of God for us that Jesus Christ condescended to take on flesh and to die for us, that he suffered for us at great cost to himself. And because of that, we can have hope of not only a future life with you, but to be delighted in as your beloved children. And we ask that you would help us now to encourage our hearts with these things. In Jesus' name, amen. If the early disciples would have known that one day we would call this day Good Friday, they would have been confused. Confused in the wake of the suffering and the shame and the humiliation and the trauma that Jesus endured. Because this day, Good Friday, reminds us that there has never been a greater humiliation of a person than that of Jesus Christ. This day... Nearly 2,000 years ago, Peter reminds us, verse 18, that Christ suffered. In the final hours of his life, he was betrayed by Judas, a man that he had gone out and hand-selected to be one of his disciples, someone that he had spoken to as a friend, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And that betrayal not only led to his arrest, but also to his senseless mistreatment in the final hours of his life by his captors. While on trial before them for nothing, those guarding him decided to have a little fun with Jesus by mocking him and hurling insults at him as they punched him blindfolded. Can you even begin to imagine what it felt like to be blindfolded, to be punched, and lose track of all sense of time as you began to wonder from where the next blow would come? All this while Peter another hand-selected disciple, another beloved friend, denied him not once, as if it was just a momentary lapse of judgment. Not twice, as if he just had a bad day. But three times around a campfire before he watched them bind him and lead him away and deliver him over to Pilate, a Roman governor who was too afraid of his own constituents to deliver Jesus justice. So after having him fiercely whipped, Pilate released a notorious insurrectionist, Barabbas, and delivered Jesus into the hands of his enemies. His body is beaten, his flesh is torn and flayed, his blood is spilled on the ground for all to see, 
He was then mocked and stripped before. They coronated him with a crown of thorns, hailing him, King of the Jews, as they spit on him before they highly exalted him on a cross for all the world to see. Friends, Jesus Christ suffered in this life. That is why he is an all-sufficient Savior who understands the pain that you go through so completely and can empathize with all of your prayers and brokenness so compassionately. In the final hours of his life alone, relational abandonment, physical abuse, emotional trauma, spiritual oppression, all as he died, a cursed, public, shameful death on a tree. It is easy for us to become so familiar with the events of Good Friday that they lose all sense of meaning to us and their sting. But if we slowly read through the gospel accounts and pay attention to what is taking place, the cruelty that is on display in the scenes of Good Friday is really stomach-churning. And we begin to ask ourselves as we're reading the Bible, how is it possible for people to be this horrible to any other human being? The Old Testament spoke of these events in great detail especially concerning the emotional and the mental anguish that Jesus experienced while enduring all of this pain, while his life was described by some as a perpetual Gethsemane, because the prospect of his suffering was not only before him in the way that he lived his life, but every time he read God's word, he was reminded of his mission, and he would see its fulfillment in his life. As you read passages like Psalm 69, verse 20, reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Jesus knew what it was like to long for mercy. In Psalm 22, verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Texts that when we read, they remind us of the very moment that Jesus was willingly giving his life to save others at the expense of his own comfort in life. He was mocked for bringing salvation to the world by the very people he had come to save. Jesus suffered greatly in this life. And he did it, Peter tells us, verse 18, once for sins, that he might bring us to God. The very effectiveness of Christ's sacrificial suffering and his priesthood stands in stark contrast to the sacrifices offered by the priests under the old covenant. The author of Hebrews says it like this, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. They offered sacrifices repeatedly, over and over and over and over again. And when you read in the book of Leviticus, you see that they're actually only able to go for the Day of Atonement once a year. But there's something different about Jesus' sacrifice. He offered a single sacrifice once for all time. Once for all. And his sacrifice was for sins, for your sins, 
for my sins, for the sins of all who would believe in Jesus by faith. His sacrifice was for sins because we actually need to be cleansed from our sins. His sacrifice was for sins, and it secured the forgiveness of sins forever. His sacrifice achieved the goal for which he intended, which is why Jesus says the astonishing and familiar but beloved words that we all remind ourselves on Good Friday, it is finished. But they're words that we actually often don't live like we believe, do we? Let me ask you. Why are you always trying to please everybody? And why is your life so overcommitted all of the time? And why are you constantly overworking and never satisfied with what you produce? Whether it's something you build or something you write or words that you speak or something that you've done with team, you're trying to finish what God has finished. You're not obeying because you love him. You're trying to make yourself acceptable to him by your obedience. And Good Friday is a reminder to us every year that it'll never work. It tells you that you must obey because it is finished, not in order to finish it. Which is why Peter tells us Jesus suffered once for sins. He finished it that he might bring us to God. His purpose, the whole point of the entire mission when we read the Gospels, was that he would bring us to God to bring us to God because we were far from God because of our sin. Our sin separated us from God. Our sin alienated us from God. Our sin needed to be forgiven by God. But forgiveness is difficult, isn't it? On the one hand, it requires something that feels like an act of injustice. We all know exactly what this was like. Just try to imagine that someone has done something wrong to you. They've spoken evil about you. They've slandered you. They've lied about you. They've stolen from you. Forgiveness in those cases can seem wrong, almost like a lie in our lives. If you forgive the person, it's as if you're saying that what they did never really happened and it really wasn't that bad. But it did happen and it was that bad and it did hurt. So forgiveness feels wrong to us. But on the other hand, forgiveness is absolutely essential and necessary because, let's face it, if there was no forgiveness, the world would come to a screeching halt. Everybody in this room does wrong things. Even the best among us, whoever we consider to be the most Christian here, has hurt and offended somebody else. At some point, every single person in this room not only has forgiven but needs to be forgiven, and if no one forgave anyone else... We'd be in a permanent gridlock all of the time. No one could be happily married. No one could have a close or meaningful friend. No one could have a good relationship with anybody else, including their parents. And holding on to a grudge, if we're honest, is absolutely exhausting. Those of us nursing a grudge or bitterness right now in our hearts know that to be the case. It takes a lot of energy to be an unforgiving person, even though some of us manage it for years. The whole notion of forgiveness raises all kinds of questions for us. Who should be forgiven? Are there things that are unforgivable? What kind of apology actually needs to be required when somebody is giving forgiveness, and does it even need to be sincere? Should there be a prolonged pattern of change behavior before we forgive someone? Can you forgive someone unilaterally even if they don't forgive it? I forgive you, even though you didn't ask for it. But what about God? 
He's never done anything for which he needed forgiveness from any of us. But Good Friday teaches us something, that he endured wrong from each and every one of us. None of us have been faithful to God. Every single person in this room has ignored God. All of us at different points have even blamed God for the mistakes and sins and difficult providences of our lives. It's your fault. It's not mine. And once more, God teaches us that because he loves those he's made in his image, he actually takes a personal offense at all of the things that we do to other people. Every time we sin, we sin against God, and every time we sin against another person, we ultimately sin against God. So Peter tells us that Jesus had to suffer. Jesus had to suffer because we sin so comprehensively in our lives that he might bring us to God by, verse 18, substituting himself, the righteous for the unrighteous, the one who is holy for the unholy. Notice the way that we're described. Those who were unclean were substituted for by the one who was clean. The one who was righteous gave his life for those who were unrighteous. In our place, the scripture tells us, condemned he stood. Reflecting on the ironies of the cross, D.A. Carson tells the story of when he was a young boy that while he was trying to read narratives of a variety of kinds, he would often stop at certain points, close the book, and try to imagine what would happen if certain details of the plot changed all of a sudden. And in his mind's eye, there were times where he would try to imagine what it would be like if when Jesus was hanging on the cross while he was there and everybody's mocking him and some are walking by and deriding him and others are railing him and reviling him and others are spitting on him and ridiculing him, that Jesus actually gathered his strength and he leapt down from the cross, instantly healed and demanded his clothes back from everybody. What would happen then? How would the narrative be at that point? Wouldn't they finally believe? And Carson notes that in one sense, yeah, they would. They'd, they'd believe that something happened. That'd be a pretty remarkable, convincing display of power as the mockers then all of a sudden begin to backpedal, just like anybody who challenges somebody often does. They start to mock, and then they are challenged, and then they start to back up. But Good Friday teaches us, in the full Christian sense, would they really believe in him? They would not. It teaches us that to believe in Jesus in the Christian sense means trusting him utterly as the one who has borne our sin in his body on the tree, as the one whose life and death and burial and resurrection had to be offered in our place to reconcile us to God. If Jesus had just leapt down from the cross, the mockers and the onlookers would not have been able to believe in Jesus in that sense because he would not have actually sacrificed himself for us and for our salvation. So there'd be nothing to trust in except our own ineffective, empty, self-righteous efforts to make ourselves right with God. And suddenly, all of the words from the mockers on Good Friday take on a new weight of meaning because they spoke better than they knew. He saved others, but he can't save himself. And the irony is is that they are exactly right. If he saved himself, he can't save others. He saved others because he refused to save himself. 
And the irony behind the ironies is that they speak better than they know that the man who cannot save himself came to save others. He came to save us. He came to save you. He came to save me. He came to save every single person who would trust in him. One of the reasons that they were so blind is that they thought merely in terms of the physical and the restraints. He can't save others because he's nailed to a tree. That prevents the possibility of him actually coming down and doing something about it. He's weak. He's powerless. But what they don't know is that anybody who knew who Jesus really was was fully aware that nails and soldiers did not keep him on the cross. That that was not the reason that Emmanuel, God with us, stayed on the cross. He came and he stayed on the cross because he came to save us from our sins. The sins that you've committed and I've committed. The sins that we committed today. The sins that you've committed against God in private and against one another. The sins that you've committed against people that you'll never tell others about. The sins that have alienated you from God and deserve his deepest wrath. Friends, the promise of Good Friday is that Jesus, because he did not save himself, is capable of saving others. He saved you by dying on the cross for you. And if you believe in that Christ, that he suffered in your place, that he hung on the tree for you, that he bore the wrath that you deserve, that you can have eternal life, which is why the gospel message is so profoundly simple. Christ crucified. Jesus suffered. The hope of the gospel for you, for you and for all of the kids. It's a simple message. Jesus came, and he lived, and he suffered, and he continued to suffer in the greatest act of love the world has ever known, and he died, and he died for you. And if you will believe in him afresh, not only will you be encouraged believer, but if you believe in him afresh and remind yourself of these truths, you will have strong hope for tomorrow. But perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian, This is the message you will always hear at a Christian church, this one and any other you go to. A very simple gospel message that Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners, suffered for the people that he loved. He suffered so that you would not have to suffer. He died so that you would not have to die. And he lives again. Easter Sunday is coming. He lives again so that you have hope of everlasting life. The truth of the matter is, is that Jesus could not save himself, not because of any physical constraint, but because of a moral imperative. He came to do his Father's will, and there was nothing that would deter Jesus from it. Go back and read the Gospels over the next few days and see all of the ways that people are trying to turn Jesus away from the cross. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You don't want to suffer like that. May it never be, Lord. And Jesus is pushing everybody out of the way. I'm not listening to you, Satan. I'm not listening to you, Peter. I'm not compelled by these things because I have a job to do. I'm going straight to Jerusalem. I'm going to the cross because if I don't, there is no Good Friday. He came to do his Father's will, and it was not nails that held him to the wretched cross. It was an unqualified resolution out of love, love for the Father, love to do the Father's will, Love for the people that he so loved, sinners like you and me, that he suffered, Peter tells us, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he actually might bring us to God.
the image of presenting us to God. And his sufferings, according to Peter, are not just something that he had to endure, but they're actually something for us to take courage from and to imitate. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Friends, what he endured makes it possible for you to bear up under suffering. You doing what Jesus would do is possible because of what Jesus has done for you. The very foundation of our salvation, of everything that we believe in Christ, makes imitation possible, and such is the duty placed on all who believe. Do you believe? If the disciples would have learned that we would one day call this day Good Friday, they would have been confused in the wake of the suffering and the shame and the humiliation and the trauma that Jesus endured. But we call it Good Friday, although it goes against everything that our society teaches, because we know our glory is our humiliation as we identify with the sufferings of Christ. It is actually a badge that we wear that reminds us that we belong to him, and it is what we we will present as an ironclad defense for our acceptance before God in heaven when it is our time to move on from this life to the next. Recently, there was a video of Alistair Begg wondering what it was like for the thief on the cross who we just read about at the end of his life, just moments away from death, when he finally died and was presented before the pearly gates and got there, and they asked him the question that we so often ask other people, why should you be allowed to enter into God's heaven? And he begins to wonder and speculate, what was it like for that thief? He had never been baptized. He had never gone to an academy class. He didn't know Sunday night theology existed. He wasn't a member of the church. He couldn't tell you the 66 books of the Bible or the 12 disciples. He didn't even know there was a Bible. What was he going to say when he got there? Well, I'm not sure. Maybe there's some other reason that he would give. And he says, this is what the man would have said. The guy on the middle cross said that I can come, so I'm here. Friends, that is the answer for everybody in this room. The guy on the middle cross, if you believe in him by faith, says that you can be there no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter how much sin you've committed. And if you will repent of your sin, turn away from it and trust and the man on the middle cross, and believe in him, and ask God to make his life your life, and his death your death, and his resurrection your resurrection. You can have hope that no matter how inarticulate your answer might be when you get there, when you are asked, why are you allowed to be here? You can confidently say, that man on the middle cross died for me, and it gives me peace within, a peace that gave Horatius Bonner the courage to write these words when he contemplated the sufferings of Christ. I see the crowd in Pilate's hall, their furious cries I hear, their shouts of crucify appall, their curses fill mine ear. And of that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one, and in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. I see the scourgers rend the flesh of God's beloved Son.
And as they smite, I feel afresh that I of them am one. Around the cross, the throng I see that mock the sufferer's groan, yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. Twas I that shed that sacred blood, I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God, I joined the mockery. Yet not the less that blood avails to cleanse me from mine sin. And not the less that cross prevails to give me peace within. You want peace within? You want to stop trying to finish what God has finished? Trust in the finished work of Christ afresh. And you will be born again of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these times. We can just remind ourselves of the gospel. A gospel we so desperately need because we profess that it is so often hard to feel that it is doing anything in our daily lives. I confess, we confess, that we are sinners in desperate need daily, minute, moment by moment, breath by breath, in need of your forgiveness. We sin every day in a multitude of ways, ways that we're aware of and ways that we're not. Help us, but help us on this Good Friday to not simply commemorate the sufferings of Christ, but to be reminded that those sufferings bring us peace within. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.